Hi folks, welcome back. Um, so what we're going to do in this podcast is talk through Act 2, Scene 3 and Act 2, Scene 4. Um, so if you haven't already listened to Act 2, Scene 2 and went through your own copy and added to your notes, please do so before listening to the rest of this podcast. Uh, so we've got two quite short scenes, um, but they are really important because they help to develop uh, what's happened in the prior scene with the arrangement between Antony, Caesar, and Octavia. Um, and in Act, scene th- uh, in Act 2, Scene 3, Antony promises initially to reform. And then the soothsayer um, advises Antony to return to Egypt because if he stays with Caesar, he's going to be overshadowed. And he ultimately, Antony recognises the truth of that warning and determines to return to Cleopatra. So this um, kind of, it's a short yet really pivotal scene. And so what we're going to do is we're kind of going to go through it. um, And it's worthwhile pausing this if you need to. And we'll be having a look at uh, what kind of language devices Shakespeare's used in order to present characters or or themes within this this particular scene within the act. So uh, I think the first thing that we need to kind of consider is that there is a shift in location. So we are still in Rome, but now we're in Caesar's house. So this is a much more intimate, this is a much more private scene. Um, And the opening stage direction enter Antony, Caesar and Octavia between them. The Octavia between them develops the idea that we talked about in Act 2, Scene 2, where she seems to be being used as a bit of a a pawn, um, and the fact that she's in the middle is a bit of a visual, um, a visual semiotic suggesting that she is a means of binding them together. That she's the she's the kind of glue uh, between the, the broken the broken kind of fracture of the of these two uh, members of the triumvirate. Um, now, Antony does speak to her as a husband in this scene in many ways, and um, he says, "The world and my great office will sometimes divide me from your bosom." Kind of essentially saying, you know, my duties will pull me away from you, um, and. And it's, it's, it's essentially, again, potentially a suggestion of that Anthony, that fracture that exists with his identity of, uh, of duty, honour and his um, romantic obligations as well. Um, Anthony says, you know, good night, sir. My Octavia, read not my blemishes in the world's report. Uh, I have not kept my square and that to come shall all be done by the rule. Good night, dear lady. Um, there is that possessiveness with the my Octavia, but... Antony's language in terms of how he speaks to his wife at this moment is strikingly different compared to the language that he's used when um, declaring his love for Cleopatra, for example. So it's just something to think about in terms of the, the changes of, of the tone of his language. Um, and even the good night, dear lady, it just seems to kind of lack the passion in the, the declarations of love that he gives to Cleopatra in Act One. And I think that that's a real striking contrast. He does kind of try to say to her, you know, read not the blemishes in the world's report. In other words, you know, try to ignore the faults that other people might be saying about me, you know, take me as I am. Um, so there is that kind of uh, recognition from Anthony that that people are suggesting that he's he's flawed. Um, and it's it's a short yet really pivotal kind of little exchange between the two of them. And then the soothsayer comes in and we know the soothsayer again, it's that introduction of the, that there is a a greater force at work within this play. This concept of fate or destiny and fortune and the supernatural comes into play through this character. We've seen it previously in Act One, um, in which he read the, the fortunes of Charmian and Iris, um, and now he does the same for Antony. Um, and it's suggesting that Antony is in 
control of, of a greater force that he's not necessarily governing his own destiny and again with an argument it's worthwhile thinking about then how much of this is to blame or how much of this is a path that Antony has to tread because it's already laid out for him so the conversation is essentially uh you know hi you to Egypt again in other words you need to go back to Egypt um and a real kind of moment of tension is in which Antony's suggestion of whose fortunes shall rise higher Caesar's or mine and it's a one sentence response, Caesar's full stop. And there is a sense of tension at that point that Antony's kind of um, greatness is always going to be eclipsed by this character. Um, so this warning that he gives him, therefore, O Antony, stay not by his side, that thy spirit which keeps thee noble, courageous, high, unmatchable, where Caesar's is not, but near him thy angel becomes afeard as being overpowered, make space enough between you. And actually what's, what's really, really interesting in terms of the language here is there is praise that's um, put on to Antony's spirit, so noble, courageous, high, unmatchable, that triple suggests that Antony is the greater character in terms of uh, morality and in terms of personality. But actually, that doesn't matter um, because if he's still closer to Caesar, Caesar's still going to overpower him. Um, so it, it's something to maybe put a, a little bit of a star. Is, is Shakespeare maybe starting to say something about leadership here? You know, Antony has the characteristics of a good leader and actually of a good person but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to succeed or to win or to overpower. Um, so it, it could be a little bit of a debate in terms of what constitutes um, good leadership or governance. And that is going to be an extended kind of theme that's explored throughout the play. Um, and that image of make space enough between you. In other words, you need to you need to move to a different continent um, because that's the only way that you're going to you're you're going to survive if, if you stay close it's you're going to be you're going to lose um, and that metaphor of kind of sin and salvation you know the demon thy spirit overpowered so um it, fate destines fate essentially says you're going to have bad luck if you stay near caesar you need to put you need to put uh, continents between you and that does create tension um antony it seems to kind of affect him because you know it's like speak this no more um he seems to be um not as talking as he might have been previously. He's listening uh, to the soothsayer. And we know that the soothsayer is, um, and that, that idea of destiny and fate, it's a common trope of tragedy. We've seen that you know, previously with other plays that we've looked at. Um, he says, if thou dost play with him at any game, thou art sure to lose. And that's a really striking uh, quotation. Essentially, you are never going to win no matter what. Okay, if you're close to him, you have to stop. Um, uh, thy luster thickens when he shines by, and that imagery of that actually that any kind of glow or brightness that Antony has is going to peel or become shadowed or muddied when Caesar's nearby. He's going to shine. Um, so it's a really, really striking image that we're given in terms of the comparison that's being drawn between these two different leaders. Um, I say again, so again, that repetition that you need to leave. Um, Antony does kind of dismiss, and we're, we're kind of curious as to an audience of, is he going to listen to the soothsayer or is he going to ignore it? We always know that actually it seems to be foolish to disregard fate or destiny. Um, we've seen that in, in, in many different tragedies. Um, so we are, we're, we're wanting essentially him to listen um and to to really really think about um 
moving forward, uh, essentially, and and kind of saving himself in a, in a little bit. Um, so when he when he exits, we see essentially Anthony has a um, a, a soliloquy moment. Um, so he uses that moment of be it art or hat, he hath spoken true. And actually, what's interesting is he he agrees with what the soothsayer has said. Um, but that image of be it art or hap, in other words, be it skill or fate, he's true. So in other words, that Caesar, yes, it might be his destiny, or maybe it's just the, his skillfulness as a leader. And in terms of military prowess, he knows it's true. Um, the very dice obey him. Um, and in our sports, my better cunning faints under his chance. So Antony is an astute person. He's intelligent. Um, he knows essentially that Caesar is going to overshine him um, and that he knows he has to, you know, is it, pay heed to the warning. Um, but it's whether or not he kind of says is it is a destiny, is a skill. He's kind of saying it doesn't really matter. I need to, I need to listen to what advice I've been given. And this kind of contrasting image using um gambling or kind of drawn lots is 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 played upon. So you know, if we draw lots, he speeds, his cocks do win the battle still of mine when it is all to naught, and his quills ever beat mine in hooped at odds. So he uses this idea of games. Um, and gambling and playing essentially and says, you know, the imagery of winning and losing and that essentially Caesar will win. And no matter what Antony tries to do, he's going to lose. Um, so he makes this decision and essentially says, I will to Egypt. And though I make this marriage for my peace in the East, my pleasure lies. And that's one of the, the famous quotations from the whole play. But what we have to remember is, is the main motivation to return to Egypt, his love for Cleopatra, or is it about self-preservation um, in terms of military leader? Um, he cannot outshine or defeat Caesar. And that's the debate that might lie at the heart of how we read Antony as a character. It's not, I love Cleopatra, I need to return. He does say it is that, but that doesn't seem to be the main motivation. Um, but the idea of he makes the marriage for my peace in the east my pleasure lies and again there's a real striking image uh, contrast there of marriage and peace and then pleasure lying in the east and we've talked about how Egypt is synonymous with that idea of pleasure and love and excess and actually what we see in this soliloquy is a divided Antony he quickly changes his oath from the opening of the scene um, you know, in which he's he's not going to uh, divide or split the the, the knot uh, with Octavia that you know pay, pay no heed to kind of the the um the rumors uh it, i'll be divided from your bosom at different times well he's pretty much cleft that apart um by the end of the scene so it's it's something to think about do we look at antony negatively from that way um and we have to remember that the the marriage between octavia and antony is made a lot shorter in this play compared to what it was historically. Um, and that serves a greater dramatic function. Um, it makes it seem barren, it makes it seem cold, it makes it seem unfeeling. Um, whereas we know from the historical references that Antony actually did marry Octavia and they've had children before he returned to Cleopatra. Um, it doesn't serve Shakespeare's um, kind of function for that to happen. A, it's a really long play then, and it kind of dilutes the, the magnitude of the greatness of the love affair between Antony and Cleopatra. So actually as a dramatist, he's using artistic license to kind of shrink that time down in order to, to highlight the kind of intensity that, that, that these two great lovers, Antony and Cleopatra, have for one another. Um, so that's kind of act two, scene three. Um, and then Act 2, Scene 4 is really, really, really short, um, but it's just worthwhile kind of exploring. And it's it, it stands in a, a kind of contrast to the, the great 
lethargy in Act 2, Scene 5, because Act 2, Scene 4, um, we're in Rome, we hear a conversation between Agrippa, Lepidus and Sinus, and it is business-like, um, and it is full of activity and urgency, and in many ways, this kind of short, pithy scene is sometimes done as a as almost like a transition where they're getting ready as they go across uh, the stage, because they're, um, they're, they're, they're essentially kind of, you know, trouble yourselves and further pray, you're hissing your generals after. Um, so there is this kind of um, imagery of, of people getting ready, political movement and control is central to this action. Um, and that sense of urgency is just reminding us of that as, a, as an audience. Um, so that's those two little scenes. Um, in the next podcast, we're going to have a look through Act 2, Scene 5, which is one of my favourite scenes um, and for an actress is an absolute gift to play um, and is real, real fun. So it's worthwhile having a look at these two scenes on digital theatre, uh, watching them and then having a little read through before we move on to the rest. Okay, folks, so we are back and it is Act 2, Scene 5, probably one of my favourite uh, scenes in the entire play, maybe maybe even in most of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and we have a change in location. We are back in Egypt and we're in Cleopatra's palace. So after a few scenes of, um, you know, urgency and military tactics and planning of marriages to consolidate uh, fractured leaders, we have a real shift in tone here. Um, we open the scene with kind of a sense of lethargy and it moves more to the, the romantic or the, the kind of emotional side of relationships. Um, within Cleop Cleopatra's palace. And in this scene, um, she's moodily awaiting Antony's return. And she's uh, thinking again, what she tends to do, we've seen it before, she starts to kind of daydream and talk about previous encounters with Antony. Um, and the thought of kind of fishing reminds Cleopatra of the tricks and the amorous games that she played with him. And then a messenger comes from Rome and Cleopatra senses that something is wrong. And we as an audience are really nervous for this conversation to take place because we know exactly what message he's going to be delivering to Cleopatra. And we know it's going to go down like a lead balloon. So when she finally hears the news of Antony's marriage to Octavia, it is a scene of absolute physical triumph because she explodes and she strikes and beats the messenger to the floor, drags him by the hair. Um, she, you know, threatens to pull a knife on him. And despite then her anger, the messenger confirms that Antony has married. She threatens him again. He runs away. Um, and when someone to return, the messenger is again interrogated by her. So we do get, you know, the the absolute extremes, the infinite variety of Cleopatra's emotional state of mind in this scene. And she acknowledges the injustice of punishing the messenger for Antony's faults, but nevertheless, she dismisses him with a curse. And then she sends Alexis to find out details of Octavia's age and appearance. Paranoia is rife by the end of this scene. Um, it's a brilliant scene. And what I would recommend that you do is that you watch how this um, is performed in multiple productions. One of my favourite ones is uh, the National Theatre production that we're going to be watching uh, from next week onwards. It is fantastic. There are she literally tries to join him in a poll. Uh, it's it's fabulous. And actually, as an actor, you know, it's it must be a real great treat to play those extremes of emotions on stage. But the poor messenger, poor bloke's only doing his job. Um, that kind of image, you know, don't shoot the messenger really comes to light in this scene. But it's a moment of, of tension, but also potential comedy. Um, it's slapstick at its best. It's extreme violence, but it's also hilarious to watch as an audience. We kind of do need those little moments of light relief. Um, right, so we're going to go through it. We're going to go through it bit by bit. So have your copy out in front of you um, and 
make sure that you're adding to your running notes but do go and watch those little um scenes on uh productions they're they're absolutely fabulous they'll really give you a sense of how she dominates the space both physically and vocally so the scene begins with um essentially her asking for music and moody food brilliant so give me some music music moody food at this point and it's a real contrast to the um you know the the hastiness and the order of the previous scenes and we're reminded that cleopatra's palace you know this is a public court very different atmosphere compared to rome it's a place of music of games of sex of drink of fun it's not a place of political tension at this point and um, so there's a real contrast in terms of those two settings and music comes in and kind of underpins the action um now there they talk about games so you know let it alone oh let's do billiards come charmian um, now the reference to billiards is a bit of an anachronism um it wasn't actually a game that was invented until Shakespeare's time, so there's no way that Cleopatra could be playing that. Um, but it's we have to remember that, you know, essentially that Shakespeare is somewhat careful to historical accuracy, but not always so. He is using artistic license at that point. But it's more important that we see that it's a game of, yeah, it's, a, it's a place of uh, games and drinking and fun and sexual innuendo. So, you know, Charmian even says, like, my arm's sore, I don't want to play, ask Mardian. And Cleopatra's use of that sexual innuendo next is as well a woman with a eunuch played as with a woman. In other words, what fun can a, um, a eunuch do when playing with a woman? Um, so there is that kind of body nature um, to the dialogue at that point. And then she talks about, all right, then let's go fishing. Give me mine angle, wheel to the river. Um, and there she says, you know, with my music playing far off, I will betray tawny finned fishes. Um, and I think it's interesting that she kind of uses that word, I will betray, because she's she's saying essentially that she was going to deceive or she's going to trick fishes. Um, her bended hook shall pierce their slimy jaws. And I love the image. She says, as I draw them up, I think everyone on Antony and say, ha ha, you're caught. So that lovely little kind of... Um, story um, that she uses, that metaphor of fishing, is suggesting that she kind of caught Antony. Um, and it also helps to su suggest that, you know, she's a powerful, playful character, but that she gets kind of pleasure in a sense from, from catching this great man or this great fish. Um, and ultimately, the kind of metaphor of her being the fisherman and Antony being the fish, again, suggests that kind of the powerlessness um, that she demasculates him in her presence and that Antony is kind of wholly entangled by the wily Cleopatra. She hooks him in. Um, is kind of something that we would recognise as an audience as well in terms of the relationship between the two of them. And then Charmian's reminded of tricks that she played on Antony the last time they were fishing. Mm -hmm. So she says, "'Twas merry when you wagered on your angling, and others when you took a bet, like who's gonna be the better fisherman? And your diver hung a salt fish on his hook, which he with fervency drew up." So in other words, that, that she played a game and a trick on him. Um, and she says, that time, oh, I laughed him out of patience, and that night I laughed him into patience. And the next morning, the ninth hour, I drunk him to his bed, um, and there I put my and mantles on him whilst I wore his sword Philippa. And actually the imagery there is that she's dominant, she's mocking, she's playful. I laughed him out of patience and then that night I laughed him into patience. Um, that, that's what their whole relationship's essentially based on, is, is kind of fun, power games, but it's all playful. There is that banter with it as well. 
But when that image of, you know, she drunk him to his bed, that actually she um, can hold her drink better than he can. And again, that image of, of her demasculating him is really um, powerful there. And she says that when Anthony was lying on his bed, passed out drunk, that she put her tires and mantles on him. In other words, that she took her clothes and dressed him in her clothes while then she wore his sword. And again, that imagery there, she plays tricks on her lover once again, but the echoes of kind of act one in which she overpowers him or that, you know, he is now a strumpet's full. It's actually kind of really striking in that in that image of him wearing a woman's clothes. You know, you couldn't get any more um, obvious of a, of a parallel of him being the, the more effeminate, if we want to phrase it that way, or lacking power, and her dressed as Antony. Um, even right down to the, you know, the bits where Ina Barbas accidentally or accidentally on purpose thought that it was Antony, but it was it was Cleopatra coming. That so that bit is worthwhile kind of thinking about. It's it's an added um added image to, to suggesting the relationship between the two of them. And then the messenger comes in and we know that every time a messenger's come in so far it's always been with bad news or or news that is not going to um news that's maybe going to disrupt the current the current action. Um, the difference is here though is we know what the news is. So it's a really good example of dramatic irony and that helps to feel a lot of the tension because we know that Cleopatra is not going to be happy with the news that the messenger is going about to deliver. Um, and that lovely um, kind of uh, exclamatory, oh, from Italy, ram thou thy fruitful tidings in mine ears that long time have been barren. Um, and that um, lovely kind of the sexual innu innuendo and the force uh, that she gives in that language of ram in, the, in my ears, which have been barren. In other words, give me the news. I haven't heard anything for a while. Um, and the Cleopatra interrupts him. It's that, madam, madam. And it obviously suggests that there is a, in terms of the performer playing the messenger, that there's an unease or there's a, a discomfort because her melodramatic response is, Antonio's dead. Um, and it's a little bit melodramatic and over the top, but she's she's kind of thinking, oh no, it's bad news. Um, and she um, essentially that that her her language over dominates him. She says, "If thou say so, villain, thou killst thy mistress. But well and free, if thou so yield him, there is gold, and here my blues veins to kiss." So that kind of she she flips between two different extreme emotions. It's like you know, if you tell me he's dead, you're a villain, um, and you're going to kill me. But then you know, if you if you talk about him, then there is going to be gold and you can kiss my hand if there's good news. That kind of slight threat and that kind of imbalance that you get in her language is really um, is really quite funny. Um, um, and it supports what Ina Barbas has said prior, that she does have infinite variety within sentences sometimes as well. This is why is she's such an interesting character and probably, I feel, the hardest um, female character to play in any Shakespeare play. She's the most complex and the most multifaceted. Um, so that it's a slow build-up because Shakespeare doesn't just get the messenger come out and say, oh, by the way, Anthony's married to Octavia and that sucks for you. Um, it's the first, madam, he is well. So, like, he's alive but maybe by the end of the scene you're hoping he won't be um so she gives him you know gold but there's more gold but sarah mark we used to say the dead are well bring it to that the gold i give thee i will melt and pour down thy ill uttering throat um so she kind of says oh brilliant he's well but actually we say the dead are well so i'm gonna pour, i'm gonna melt this gold down and pour it on your throat um and that lovely I would say that the imagination that Cleopatra has is brilliant. And for any Game of Thrones fans, you might be thinking, oh, it's very similar to that moment um, it, with, uh, oh gosh, what do you call it? Daenerys' brother. Um, 
but she's got a rich and fertile imagination, but also the capacity to be potentially extremely violent if she doesn't kind of get her way. Um, but that kind of the threat we think it's it's a moment of slapstick, so it's kind of dark comedy, you could say. Um, and then she, he's like, please just listen to me, hear me. Um, and then that the, she keeps going with it, that threat, you know, there's no goodness in thy face if Antony be free and healthful. So tart a favor to trumpet such good tidings. If not, thou wouldst come like a fury crowned with snakes, not like a formal man. Um, it's kind of delaying the inevitable news and it helps to create tension for an audience. Um, and he's even, you know, will thou please hear me? Um, so it's 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 a it's a brilliant scene to watch as an audience because we're just waiting for her to absolutely explode. Um and Cleopatra says, you know, I have a mind to strike thee ere thou speak. Yet if thou say Antony lives as well, our friends with Caesar are not captive to him, I'll set thee in a shower of gold and heal rich pearls upon thee. So within within the same little sentence she says you know I really have a I've, I've got in my mind I think I want to hit you I want to beat you but actually if you tell me that Antony's alive or friends with Caesar or not kind of his prisoner then I'll shower you with gold and heal rich pearls upon me it's a very different image to the I'll melt this gold and pour it down your throat but I'll shower you with gold and praise um, and it's really interesting structurally and she's done this you know, previously within this scene, she threatens and then rewards, threatens and rewards. She really shifts between those two, those two extremes within that sentence. Um, and that, that slow then little repartee of the Madam He's Well, well said, and friends with Caesar, thou art an honest man. Caesar and he are greater friends than ever. It's a real build up and it helps to create tension and light relief in terms of the dramatic irony there. Um, and that brilliant famous bit where he says, but yet, madam, and then I do not like, but yet. It does allay the good precedence. Um, she lands on that word, but, and she knows that means there's, there's got to be bad news. And I love it where she really zooms in on that language. I do not like, but yet, after this kind of whole happiness of make thee a fortune from me. In other words, like, I am brilliant. Here's all of this gold I'm praising you with it. And she turns and she bites. So it's that like smiling and then biting within a, a line. And it's, it's brilliant to play. Um, and it's kind of a reminder that her language is full of hyperbole and real imagery in her speech. She's interesting, nonetheless, you can't argue with that. Um, and she says, you know, fie upon but yet, but yet is a jailer to bring forth some monstrous malefactor. So she really actually unpicks that phrase, but yet. Um, and she kind of unpacks what it means as well. Um, and then that image though, she's like, you know, tell me, is he and thou sayest free? So she means essentially that Antony's not held captive, but the messenger essentially there's a misunderstanding here in terms of what free means because he says free madam no I made no such report he's bound unto Octavia and then the next line when she says for what good turn it must be that she's like she means turn is in favor so, so in other words what do you mean Antony's bound it doesn't even come into her head that he could be bind as in married um to Octavia she thinks it must be in terms of uh, that she owes him that he owes her something um and then his response stupid messenger is not to kind of say like oh for marriage but he he turns it into a body joke he says for what good turn and the messenger says mm, for the best turn in the bed and that bit Literally, I love the image where she says, I am pale, Charmian. It literally provokes Cleopatra. The colour drains from her at that point. She's sickened at the thought that he is 
essentially physically or sexually or now maritally involved with this with this woman she feels it's the ultimate betrayal at this point um and it's that dramatic explosion like this kind of misunderstanding of bind has just kind of it's it's been a bit of a nuclear bomb in, into this scene and it's a real different tone compared to uh, the beginning of the scene but it's richly comic as well because the um he then tells it down you know madam he's married to octavia and all it does is intensify the tension because she uses almost kind of like a curse. It's almost like biblical proportions where she says the most infectious pestilence upon thee. And she starts to beat him. And he's like, patient, what say you? Beats him again. Um, him trying to kind of appease her or plead for his life is just not going to work at this point. And actually all of her uncontrollable passion and anger, maybe that should be directed towards Antony, is essentially just lauded upon with the first person in front of her. The messenger gave her the bad news, so she's gonna she's gonna unleash all of her violence and her anger and her um, emotional upset onto this poor man. And it's a great moment for us as an audience. Um, we have to say, and um, that violent passion she's kind of pushed to an attack. And there's a real loss of control at this point. You know, we have to remember she's a queen, um, and it, her beating a messenger over and over and over again. Um, and the language that she uses, you know, I'll spurn thine eyes like balls before me. I'll unhear thy head. Like she's literally like, I'm going to pull the hair out of your head. I'll take your eyeballs out of your, out of your head and I'll use them as games. Really good imagination. Really, really violent. We can see where um, George R. R. Martin got his ideas from. Um, but we see the kind of tempestuous and the passionate and the savage nature of her character. But we have to remember... Sorry, that's my phone. We also get to see um, the the kind of the depth of her feelings for Anthony as well, um, and how um, how much she must be hurt by kind of hearing this news, as you would. Um, you know, she kind of didn't want him to leave in the first place, and this is kind of potentially a reason as to as to why. Um, and that, I love the kind of imagery, you know, she heals him up and down. She literally drags him around the stage by his hair. She beats him. Um, and we're reminded of, you know, that she's a character of contradictions. She can be both regal, yet also, um, you know, described as a, as a whore or as a strumpet, but also be described as a kind of a goddess, but then also behave here, like almost like a commoner, like a fishwife at different points. Um, and it's, Ina Barbas has already established that, like her infinite variety. She, she, takes on all of these different um roles and we we kind of see it sometimes within a scene itself um so he tells us a little bit more that the messenger eventually kind of starts to you know but he's married madam um on line 70 onwards um and she she essentially it, it intensifies beating him is not good enough she's like rogue thou hast lived too long and she draws a knife so the extremes kind of the, the tension builds up massively um and then he runs away a good good idea messenger because she's not a woman to kind of plead with or or to kind of um try and barter your life with she'll she'll just take it um and charmian is kind of the voice of reason she's like you know good madam keep yourself within yourself the man is innocent in other words like show restraint it's not his fault um and that brilliant bit where, again, kind of slightly apocalyptic imagery that she uses, you know, melt Egypt into Nile and kindly creatures turn all to serpents. Um, there's that sense that she she kind of essentially 
it is like a little bit of a curse. And and again, we know she's already been described as a bit as a, as a gypsy before. She's already been associated with the supernatural, and she kind of evokes that language at different points as well. But to me, I think why she uses that is to me everything that she thought she knew or that she recognised or thought to be true has now turned out to be a lie. So she talks about the idea of something strong, you know, Egypt, um, or kind creatures turned to serpent. She's, she uses that inversion of something that I thought was once powerful, I wanted to dissolve and melt into the Nile, and good creatures should be serpents and bite. Um, she doesn't recognise the world that she lives in anymore because Antony has betrayed her so extremely in her eyes. Um, and then we come back to, you know, right, call the slave again. Although I am mad, I will not bite him. Like, bring him back. I need to find out more information. And there is that lovely, like, he's afeard to come. I'd be. Yeah, absolutely. And she's like, like, I won't hurt him. Um, and the messenger's gone. And she does kind of talk about her, her, herself and her flaws. She's like, these hands do lack nobility, that they strike a meaner than myself, since I myself have given myself the cause. She's like, she kind of blames herself. She's like, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. I am flawed for doing this. And she says, but I will later blame Antony because it's not my fault. It's his fault that he's made me do this. Um, and the messenger comes back and tries to, you know, fill in some more of the gaps that um, that he didn't get a word in edgewise um, before. And her anger is still there. Like even she she says at line 95 onwards, that lovely imagery, um, that um, that kind of Roman uh, Roman imagery that she uses again, get thee hence thou hadst thou narcissist in thy face to me thou wouldst appear most ugly. He is married. And again, she keeps asking that question. Is he married? He's married. And it's like she can't believe it. So she has to ask the question multiple times. That repetition suggests that she's she's kind of moved by this um, or, or shocked that, that this is actually, he's done this on her. Um, and she she's, sees the messengers being kind of ugly for, for giving her such um, horrible news. Um, and if we, if we move on kind of like to what lines 100 onwards, Cleopatra, says, look, messenger, you're not to blame, it's Antony, that his fault should make a knave of thee. Yeah, so in other words, it's not it's not fair that you've been made the villain. It's it, This is Antony's fault. Um, but, you know, she does say, get thee hence. And then she says, lie thy upon thy hand and be undone by them. She, she curses him as he leaves. So again, that kind of like, it's not your fault. I'm sorry, it's Antony. But also, I hope that you have a horrible, torturous life. Here's a curse. Um, so that, that kind of um, the extremes that we see in Cleopatra as well, um, that infinite variety. Um, and he leaves. And Cleopatra then kind of moves to this moment of inward reflection a little bit. She says, you know, in praising Antony, I have dispraised Caesar. I am paid for it now. She kind of essentially says that, she she knows she was flawed that she should have she's kind of pushed him away she's pushed that she also sees it as that she recognizes that that it might be there might be a political reasoning for this marriage you know in in praising Antony I have dispraised Caesar she's suggesting that she's quite politically astute as well we have to remember that that she knows that this has probably been a marriage of an allegiance between between the uh, the two of them to, to link Antony and Caesar together and she says, I'm paid for it now. In other words, this is punishment. Um, and the kind of 
surging and shifting and conflicting emotions is is really evident in Cleopatra at this point. Um, and then she's, you know, I faint, oh, Iris, Charmian. So she's kind of literally physically and emotionally weakened by it. Feels like she's going to pass out. Her colour's already drained from her eyes. And then she shifts. She's like, tis no matter. In other words, no, I'm fine. So she's, she changes her um, her emotions within that sentence. And then she says, Alexis, right, here's a message. She says, uh, go and uh, report the feature of Octavia, her years, her inclination. In other words, what does she look like? How old is she? And what's her personality like? Let him not leave out the colour of her hair. Bring me word quickly. And we might be thinking like, why? Why does she want to know all of those things about Octavia? Well, this is essentially the... the um, the kind of ancient Egyptian version of uh, Facebook stalking, isn't it? Um, she wants to know exactly who's her competition or is it competition? Um, so how old is she? What does she look like? What's her personality? The colour of her hair? I need to be able to make this connection or this comparison between me and her. Um, is is she going to be a fight um, between uh, Anthony and myself? It also suggests that she's jealous and that she's paranoid and that might be a weakness in her character as well. It might be a moment in which we think we might feel sympathy for her as well because she's got those, um, those that fallibility or those flaws. Um, and then there is that, you know, let him forever go, let him not charm me. And so in other words, like, I want him, I just don't want to see him again, but she does. And then this lovely image, that metaphor, though he be painted one way like a Gorgon or a simile, sorry. So though he be painted one way like a Gorgon, the other way is a Mars. And obviously a Gorgon is kind of a, like a monster. And, and then the other way is a Mars, that divided identity that she sees him as both monstrous and godlike both at the same time and we know that Anthony is that kind of divided character and that you know pity me Charmian but do not speak to me I love that one like give me sympathy but don't talk to me um she she's uh the kind of broken-hearted girlfriend at this point um so it's 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 a brilliant scene to really really kind of get your teeth in into in terms of how Cleopatra is depicted um and the audience response to her and I really do recommend that you watch the scene on the RSC but watch how Sophie Ogonado does it in the National Theatre's production next week. It is absolutely hysterical. It is brilliant. And again, with AO5 and AO2, it's really worthwhile thinking about stagecraft and how this scene is performed. And you can talk about those moments in an essay um, in terms of how an actor or a director has depicted this scene and thinking about the effect, because we have to remember we are studying a play text and that's really, really important. Um, so we'll leave it there. We'll come back to the rest of of Act 2 um, in a little while.